0: This is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode 22, recorded July 12th, 2022. I'm Jason Snell, joined as always by our Director of Strategy and the Director of Strategy at Parrot Analytics, Julia Alexander. Hi, Julia. Hey, Jason. How are you? I'm doing great. Do you have a title for me?
1: I have a few that were sent (laughs) my way because I thought of some and they were all terrible. But then I had a few that were sent my way. And I kind of love the idea of calling you our master of ceremonies. I feel oh, like that's like what it. you are, our master of ceremonies, uh, Jason Snell. So I think we should go with that one.
0: All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna put that in. I, I love it. I um I back when I was in my 20s, I became a master of journalism. That was very exciting, and now I'm a master of ceremonies too. So now my mastery continues. That's what I'm saying.
1: <laughs> I mean, truly, I think that like I think that's what you are. You're just our master of ceremonies. It's beautiful.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm conducting. You know, it it, ha- it, it happens. Uh. I I well thank you for bestowing my title upon me. We'll uh we'll uh, try it out. I've got some follow up for you. Um our endless I mean this is follow up forever for all time the uh endless debate about the binge drop versus the weekly release. Mm. Uh you posted on Twitter about The Bear dropping on Hulu all at once and how that totally worked and people have been talking about The Bear uh out of nowhere. Um, also, of course, since we last spoke, the the last two episodes of Stranger Things were released, sort of pulled off of the, the season release and given their own release a little bit later to stretch out the Stranger Things excitement. Um, and, you know... I think I think the lesson we can learn here maybe is that there is no one right answer to this question and that everybody's still experimenting. I know you said on Twitter that maybe the most likely model going forward for most stuff is going to be the sort of what Apple does, the drop three episodes and then go weekly thereafter so that you can kind of uh, binge a little bit a mini binge if you want to but then after that we're going to stretch you out. But I feel like the the lesson is basically that there is no exact right answer and that everything is different and that some shows might be better in a binge, which I know you said, you already said that like a month or two ago. Some some shows work better one way. Some shows work better than another way. Maybe different services even have different um, right ways of doing it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I was talking to um, Ben Cohen over at the Wall Street Journal about this and the idea that there has to be one shoe size that fits all just doesn't make much sense when the reason that a company might invest in a specific type of show beyond believing in the creative merit of it is to accomplish different feats. And so therefore depending on what you're trying to accomplish and being able to experiment, there's no rhyme or reason, or excuse me, there's no specific reason um, why you would box yourself in to a very one method fits all type of release method. So I do think like going forward, I mean, I, I think the three episode and drop and then weekly makes the most sense for, you know, you see Amazon do it, you see Hulu do it, HBO Max kind of experiments with it. Um, a- Apple obviously does it, and I think that makes the most sense because you get to have a sense of what the show is with three episodes, and then by that point you're either suck you're sucked in, and you're like, I'm going to watch you each week, and that helps with retention, helps with word of mouth, and all that fun stuff. But there are still some opportunities where you know, even a show like The Bear, which I really love, like that show works well for a binge because if, for me it took like episode, episode four or five to like really super get into it. I mean, it was I was definitely intrigued by episode three, but by the fourth or fifth, I was in the middle. I was, I got to like, oh, I'm going to binge the rest of the season. This is great. I think a lot of people are also getting there. And the fact that it's available all at once helps that audience really settle in and be like, I'm going to watch this and then I'm going to obsess over it for a little bit. And and this is the thing that brings me to Hulu. Um, And I think straight – Squid Game did that for Netflix in a way where I think if that show had only been available in two to three episodes and then weekly, I think it would have not necessarily found the same sized audience at once. That that idea of creating that cultural zeitgeist moments get, gets really gets really difficult. Um, and and the binge model just works for a show like The Bear, but I do think going forward because. The thing with the bear is that although it's still picking up demand, it is not necessarily going to see these huge spikes over, you know, the eighth or ninth week that a typical weekly show would have. So I do think the three episodes plus weekly for the last, you know, five to five to seven makes the most sense, both in terms of a business proposition for the company, but also for the creatives who want their show to have this strong, you know, word of mouth sensation.
0: I was thinking about the Stranger Things uh, structure and thinking that – It's probably wrong for us to think of that as a Netflix strategic thing. My my guess, and I haven't read anything about this, maybe there are interviews where they say this, but it it feels like the way that season was structured, it's almost like the producers, like the Duffer brothers are like, we have a really good break here. this would be a great moment to leave the audience hanging a little bit. Like it can be a creative decision too, right? Like if you've got, uh, the truth is if you're building a show with a, with, and it's got some great cliffhangers in it, it's kind of a shame to drop it all at once. Although I can see the counter argument, which is what is better than a cliffhanger to drive you to just keep going and watch yet another episode of the show. I don't know. I mean, it really is like, it's all, it's art, it's commerce. Um, it's, it's what the user behavior is. And um, and it's complicated like we keep saying there's there's no one right answer and and that that's okay like the bear you're right the trade off with the bear is I, and Squid Game is like this too I think you're right I think if they hadn't been available at the, in the way they were they probably wouldn't have caught fire the downside of it is you've got nothing more to give at that point and so it's going to catch fire and that's great but it's not going to have a, a as long a tail uh, where people are talking about it 8 weeks out cuz it it all got released at once and now it's done for well, and this know. is
1: you know and this is my question for um someone like ja- John Langraff, who is the head of FX and the Bears and FX show that went to Hulu which is part of the Disney strategy of taking some FX shows and putting them on on Hulu in part because a lot of those shows might be harder to find a weekly audience on a network like FX and but it might also find an audience on Hulu I mean this is like the best example I think of that happening but I would love to ask John Langgraff his opinion, because this is someone who greenlit that show for a linear weekly audience. Like that was the concept of the show is to watch it, you know, in weekly parts and instead got released as a binge. And I think that helped the show immensely. But I do wonder if John Landgraf, like to your exact point, Jason, like this idea of, you know, what is that trade-off? Like if you're overseeing and you're someone who really believes in the creative power of, of, of a show and the ability to generate weekly conversation week after week and really turn the something into a ongoing dominant force of culture versus this thing lands on a streaming service and it becomes a cultural zeitgeist thing in the sp- for, this, you know, two, three weeks and then it kind of fades out, you know, what is that emotional trade-off? What is that, you know, financial trade-off? What is that um, brand recognition trade-off? So I do think – like I don't know if people watched The Bear and thought about – that thought that it was FX. I don't necessarily know if that matters. Like I, and it doesn't really. Right. I don't think it matters to anyone beyond people who work – at those networks and are kind of like this Hula original, this is an FX original, whatever it might be. But I think it's a conversation that I would love to have with the execs who oversee both the creative side, but also are aware of P&L and are trying to figure out how to make, you know, it's a it's a profit based business, how to ensure the strongest profits mm. dependent on the distribution method in front of them.
0: Speaking of business things, we should mention that uh, we've been talking about Bob Chapek who runs Disney and the questions of sort of like, well, what's going on with that? Is he going to Is he gonna is he gonna stick around? He's had some issues. Um, they did re-up him. We should mention this. So it's in follow-up uh, for a three-year contract. Um, some people came out and said, aha, see, Bob, Cha- they love Bob Chapek. And other people were like, I mean, it really is like a, a, an plot test of what you think about Bob Chapek. Because I also saw a lot of people saying, look, it's three years. It means that he's he gets the opportunity to steer the company out of uh, out of his the pandemic issues and figure out other ways of of uh, you know continuing their streaming strategy and righting the ship and all of those things. Um, but also, you know, if he is not succeeding at any point, it's a three year contract. Uh, they could pull the plug if they want to. So it's really more sort of a uh, Disney's not going to make a change right now. And I, I still get the feeling that everybody's got their eyes on Bob Chapek and that if he stumbles, he'll probably be gone. But he, he's got a little more um, more time to work with now.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is like a very typical rendition of who else would it be? Right. Like there's this yeah. moment of, you know, on the one hand, like we talked about this on the last podcast or the podcast before that. But Chapek business wise has actually been great for Disney um, in the two years that he's he's been in power, uh, you know, but also who is Disney going to get right? Like like Dana Walden and and the whole situation with Peter Rice. Like that's a programming decision, that is a creative decision. You could maybe rely on someone else from the strategy team on the VP side to come in and 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 take over CEO, but. There's no one who really sticks out, and Chapek, for all of the bad PR, I mean, he is, again, leading a, a a relatively strong business, stock aside, you know, considering the macroeconomic headwinds. But there's this thing of like, well, you know, it's not the worst of times, but it's and it's not the best of times, but he seems to be weathering the storm, and he seems to be – have an idea for what he wants to do. And so we're going to kind of stick with him. But also, like we said in the last podcast, or again, the podcast before, contracts are made in Hollywood all the time. They are, you know, just to Peter Rice, where he signed a contract and then was fired. So we like, we'll see what happens with Bob Chapek. But I think he's relatively safe for the time being, if only because again, who would that successor be?
0: Yeah, I do wonder uh i occasionally consider the the thought that peter rice may have been terminated in in some ways because he was a threat to bob chapek and like your you, you know you saying well who else would it be i mean he he has sort of effectively removed a potential replacement for himself and maybe that worked i don't know I mean, and maybe that's not the reason that that uh that peter rice left but but yes that he had a year left more than a year i think on his contract so you know contracts are made to be paid out if you want to it's really just the amount of pain you want to have the company feel in firing somebody, but they can still fire them if they want to. So yeah, Bob Chapek got some time. I think it's I think it's probably fair. He he. This is a tough time. He he. Giving him a little more time to um, steer the company is probably the right decision on the board's part. And to your point, even if they had somebody waiting in the wings, um, you know who who would that be? Uh, so anyway, Bob Chapek, we'll have him to kick around. <laughs> for another <laughs> few years to talk about what he's up to. Um, I wanted to make a note. We had a, a, a listener write in uh, really good with a, a list of, uh, of shows that didn't drop on Fridays on Netflix. <laughs> yes. And I wanted to at least mention that, that like, I think for both of us, Julia, we just think uh, so much about the Friday drop on Netflix. And part of that is that a lot of Netflix's highest profile content is a Friday drop, but as yeah. this listener wrote in to point out, they actually drop a lot on Wednesdays, and there are other days of the week where they drop stuff. So I, I think when we were talking about oh, they put the um they put uh, Stranger Things out on a Wednesday, what does that mean? Um, it means something because they chose to put it out on a Wednesday instead of the Friday, but it's not as radical an idea as we might have suggested because they do drop shows on other days. It's just that, but I think in terms of habit forming, I think you and I very much are proving the point that we always think of new Netflix shows as being on Fridays.
1: Yeah, and I will say there is this extremely lovely cohort of analysts and writers and just fans and academics on Twitter who are Netflix focused and I rely on them for so much. Um, one of my favorite follows, if everybody wants to follow someone um, is Casey Moore, um, K-A-S-E-Y Moore uh, on Twitter. It's just, he runs what's on Netflix. He's just an extremely, extremely smart um, Netflix analyst and, and kind of media person. But it's great because they're so aware of how Netflix is trying to do different things or how they're changing their strategy or how Netflix is approaching certain types of shows or certain types of films but to your exact point Jason like they are the you know exception to the rule where they are very aware of what, how things are happening but I would argue like like you said the vast majority of people are aware of something that uh, comes out on Netflix it's probably Friday or they're opening up the app and they're just relying on what's in the carousel, right? Like that carousel is the most expensive piece of real estate in Hollywood. There's a very specific reason. There are are teams rather that are their whole job is dedicated to figuring out what should go in the carousel. Like what is the thing that you rely on when people open up the app? And if people are opening the app daily, they might notice that there's a new movie on a Wednesday when they open the app. They don't necessarily know that movie dropped on a Wednesday. They're just, they open the app and there's a new movie. And that's kind of the Netflix experience that Netflix has curated over the last few years. But if you ask someone, when something is probably going to come to Netflix, especially if it's a new film. The idea is that it's Friday because we associate Fridays with new movies. And if you ask them about big TV shows, to your exact point, it's probably Friday. You think about Stranger Things, well, that comes out on Friday. You know, my this big Netflix show comes out on Friday. But if you open the app, there may be something new in that carousel. It's just the difference between, oh, there's something new and I'm interested and I'm going to watch it because I'm habitually opening the app so I notice these things. Or I'm aware that this thing is coming out on a Wednesday. And that's the difference between... The Netflix, like we're dropping stuff, you know, throughout the week versus Disney where people open up Disney on Wednesday because they're aware it's Wednesday. So therefore there's new Disney. You know, people open up HBO Max on Sunday because they're they're aware there's something new HBO on Sunday or whatever it might be. I think Netflix that day has always been associated with them as Friday. And so although there's new stuff throughout the week, those days are not necessarily associated with brand new drops for Netflix. And that again is like, you know, Netflix's weakest part, well, for the, med- for the past few years, there there's many weak parts right now. But over the last few years, the Netflix's weakest part has always been its marketing side. Like Netflix doesn't necessarily want to spend on marketing. They don't necessarily think they need to. You know, there's like, so, of course, there's some marketing budget, but it's not the, to the extent that some of the big studios and the network spend on marketing. And so the question, the core of this like release strategy and distribution strategy and the idea of like owning a certain day of the week really becomes a marketing one. It's like, how do you position this against Disney and HBO and and there was a part of me that's like you know do they even want to do that but Reed Hastings gave a interview to the Hollywood Reporter a few weeks back and he specifically said like I hate that Disney owns Wednesday like he's like I like Disney owns Wednesday and like that's something that we're contending with and so there's a part of him and the other executives who are like we want to own a day we don't want Disney to own Wednesday like we want to own part of Wednesday we want to own part of Thursday and so that is a marketing thing that is like getting people to be hyper aware that they should open netflix on wednesday because there's something new not just that they do open netflix and there's something new but there's no real fanfare around it
0: well we'll keep an eye on it by the way that's uh, casey moore on twitter is k-a-s-e-y underscore underscore m-o-o-r-e i'll put it in the show notes um and also thanks to films Deliver for uh sending us right about release dates are a listener in france nice I, if i could say uh love to your mothers in french i would do it but i don't speak French. Um, I, I want to go on and uh, talk about a story in uh, in Vulture. Uh, it's our uh, our pal, uh, he hasn't been on, maybe we should get him on sometime, friend of the show, we'll say, Joe Adalian, and uh, Catherine Van Arndonk on uh, Vulture. It's a, a story called, I Don't Know How My Show Is Doing. And it's basically interviews with people who run TV shows about what they're looking for and what they know and what they don't know about measuring the success of a streaming show. Now, I'll tell you, that in all those years where I was doing TV Talk Machine with Tim Goodman, we talked about this a lot because he's, you know, going to the he's talking to creators and he's going to the, the TCA press tour and things like that. And the impression that he got and now, you know, now he is sort of working on that side in part and, and had a development deal with FX and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, the impression I get always has been since this move to streaming is, oh, did people not realize how much of the, the self-worth of people who work in Hollywood is involved with the validation of that themselves through some sort of external source and like Nielsen ratings or box office numbers? Like these are important. And you you mentioned this on Twitter too. Um, these are important for two reasons. One of them is really it's like validation. It's emotional and creative validation. It's like, am I just putting these things into the black hole? Or is somebody watching? Do I have fans? How many fans do I have? The other part of it, of course, is what's what's their next deal? And if they're the creator of a mildly successful show or a wildly successful show, it matters in terms, it should matter in terms of how much they get paid. So both of these things are going on. I would argue that box office numbers aren't bad. Nielsen numbers were never great, but they were something. But the point is with streaming, there's kind of no numbers. Um, Or the numbers are external. Uh, In fact, a funny item in here, Julia, I don't know if you noticed it in this story, is somebody who said that they signed up for a third-party research account that does third-party measurement of of, uh, streaming viewing because they wanted to know how they were doing and their streaming service wouldn't tell them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was thinking of you. I was thinking like, everybody should just be looking at the demand scores from parent analytics. You get a great idea of how you're doing. Um anyway, I, I it's just a fascinating story that is uh has been going on for a while, but it was interesting in the vulture story to hear from people, and they have different takes on it, right? Like some of them are like, Uh, One of them in particular was like, look, it's their money. They're the patrons. They pay us the money. It's their data. If they don't want to give us the data, you know, we should just take the money and be thankful. And other people are like, I I literally don't know what to do. I don't know if we are shouting into the void or whether we're successful. And, you know, how do I I react to that? And I feel for them, um, it, it is really funny that these streaming services, if you're on the outside looking in, that these streaming services basically, you would think naively that they get a report saying, hey Ron Moore, here's how For All Mankind is doing on Apple TV Plus. It's doing compared to other shows on Apple TV Plus, here's your here's your metrics that we're looking at and all that. But it sounds like basically, no, they don't they don't get any of that. They're literally if in fact according to this story, if you make a fuss and demand some sort of information, they'll give you some out-of-context information about your show. They won't tell you what the other shows on the bar chart are. And it's sort of a strike against you where they're like, oh, this one's a troublemaker. It's amazing.
1: So part of my job, and I have many thoughts on this, but part of my job is working with producers and creators and showrunners um, as they head into negotiations. And they want to know how they can negotiate with their the network, the studio, the platform, whatever it might be, uh, because they don't have data. And everything yeah. that was in that Vulture story and that Jason just recapped is, is very true. They go in – they're told very basic things. They're told your show performs well with like women yeah. between 25 and 35. And they're like, yeah. great, good to know. How does it perform with men? Yeah, it performs fine. OK, well, how does it perform generationally, you know, with above 40 or, or Gen Z or whatever it might be? Oh, we don't want to give too much information away. OK, well, how does this compare to other shows that target the same group on Netflix? Oh, well, don't worry about that. Or HBO Max or Disney Plus, whatever it might be. They don't have anything. And so here's the here's the, the the black hole issue. If you don't have any piece of information about how your show is doing, you cannot go into negotiations and say, Well, I think we deserve a million more for budget I, don't, I think we deserve you know this gap this cast member deserves two hundred thousand dollars more per episode because they're clearly a reason that people are signing up for the platform none of that the the actual valuation of their content they do not know when you were looking at nielsen data at least you could say hey we're attracting this exact demographic in this time slot. Here's how it compares to every other show in this time slot. And here's what that means in terms of advertising revenue, which we are helping generate, you know, 3% of. So at that point, you could go in and actually negotiate on fair terms to an extent about what your show is actually worth. So when we talk about these, the creators talking about they don't know how many people are watching their show. Part of it is like, an ego thing of hey, I want to know how many people are watching my show. I want to know that it doesn't just exactly exist in the ether. Like, I want to know that we have a hit on our hands or not. But the bigger part of it is what is our show's value to this platform? If you are Stranger Things and you're bringing in one to two percent of Netflix's total subscriber base in the span of a month or whenever your show comes out, that makes your show extremely lucrative. You're Stranger Things, you probably have a good sense of this. But the only other way to kind of figure this out, if you don't have access to this, is doing insane math to try and, like, position it against, like, its performance on the S&P 500. Like, you'd have to do insane math to figure out, like, what is the percentage of people who are coming onto this platform for the show who do not cancel because of the show and, therefore, what is its value? And that gets into, like, something we've talked about in the show quite often on this podcast, which is, like, the macroeconomics. Of television has have changed and film have changed significantly with streaming. The idea is not just like, well, how many people does this bring in, you know, between 18 and 49 and in the 8 p.m. rating on prime time compared to other like, like that is important, but it does not matter as much as is this show the reason that a customer joins? Is this show the reason that they've stayed 90 days later, 120 days later? Is this show the reason that they're watching other Netflix or HBO Max versions, whatever it might be? All of these different genomes create the full content valuation it creates the value of that title in a in a in a periodic sense uh, that gives the creator some estimate as to how much it is worth and how much therefore they can negotiate if you don't have any of that information how do you do business you can't you are reliant on them saying, oh, well, you're not, you're not super important to us. You could be extremely important to them. You know, a show like Grey's Anatomy, they might be able to go and talk to ABC and say like, ah, you know, it's not a huge deal, so we're going to negotiate low. And ABC, which doesn't have data on how well that show is doing, is like, well, we think that's untrue, you know? And if you're the producer, if you're Shonda Rhimes, you kind of want to know, like, well, how is it doing? Like, how how important is this to Netflix? If you are someone like the creator of BoJack Horseman, if you're the creator of um, Never Have I Ever, like whatever these shows are, you want to know how your show is doing, yes, in comparison to other similar titles on the platform, um, but also how it's helping Netflix's bottom line. And they don't have any of that information. So I think what happens is that we're still so reliant on old school measurement tools that, you know, kind of look across the spectrum. But don't really do a good job of saying like, okay, here is what the consumption habits are, but what what do those consumption habits mean in terms of how that impacts the bottom line of a streaming service's revenue, of a streaming service's profits, of a streaming service's ability to grow globally and also in very specific markets. And so I think this is a subject I get very passionate about in part because I do work with the OTTs and I also work with producers and I hear both sides of it. And there is a huge upper hand working right now if you are a buyer because you are able to take all this data. You're collecting, first of all, customer data and you're owning that relationship, but you're also taking all this data and hoarding it. You don't have to share it with your competitors, which uh, Nielsen kind of does in the box office does. You don't have to share it with your creators, really, like you get to choose what they get to know. You don't have to give strong reasons for why you decide to do something, whether it's renew, whether it's cancel, like you don't have to really give reasons. So you sit with this immense amount of power and the ability to say we are in this process of trying to scale, we are trying to hit targets that, you know, were unthinkable 2 years ago. Now we're trying to do that, and so it's very important to us that we get the strongest ROI especially in the current bear market, and we are increasing uh and when we're making the best on our investment, doing so with the data they hold dear and kind of hoping that partners will just work with them on it. If you are on the creative side of this equation, It is like operating totally blind because you don't know what you're doing. You're putting out a show and and you're hoping that it does well and you're judging like TikToks and tweets and you're judging (laughs) some of the the basic consumption stuff that Netflix or HBO Max might give them, like some basic, basic numbers. That's not enough to – to figure out like, okay, well, what does this mean for our season two negotiation? What does this mean for potential spinoffs or potential franchise development? What does this mean for us in terms – of like you can't make those decisions. And so the, the thing I get across when I read this article and I love this article and the thing when I talk to – I shared it with a bunch of people – when I talk to them, I'm like, you, the question you're asking is not how many people are watching our show. That is such a, it's a, it's an important part, but it's a sliver of what your question is. Your question is what is the value of my title to your platform, to your service? What is the inherent value of my show on your bottom line subscriber base and, and your retention and all of that fun stuff? And so I think a big part of what I'm trying to do in my career is like, rework that question with people I work with on both sides. You know, if you're on the buying side, understanding the inherent value of that title and working with the creative teams who are going to deliver more value, like we see with Netflix and the Big Duffer Brothers deal, is like inherently positive. And if you're on the selling side, if you're on the creative side, being able to understand, or you know, even the the production companies, you look at like what Moonbug's doing, what Peter Chernin's doing, like they're launching their own production companies to buy content and sell it to the buyers. You want to know what the value of that content is. That way you can continue, you know, making money and investing in new content and creating an Oroboro. But it's, it's impossible in the current state the with the current available options to do that right now. And I'm hoping that changes soon, but yeah, like, like it's, well, we're not talking about just viewership anymore. Like we are talking about the inherent value of a title on a, on a quarter by quarter, yearly by yearly basis.
0: When I, First started hearing about this story, I really thought of it as a trade secrets thing, where it's literally, you know, especially Netflix, which is an entertainment company but also a tech company. And and when Netflix went big, it was very much like, well, Netflix has lots of metrics, and they don't want to tell anybody because why would they give anything away? But the more you think about it, yeah, it is also a um, labor and management story for exactly what you said, which is if the people who they're paying don't know their value it's easier to underpay them (laughs) and Mm -hmm. if you're one of the people who's working there you want to know your value and there is the value on the open market but again the value on the open market is determined by what by perception of the success of your stuff which if if the data isn't there has to be done through a third party and estimated in some way um. So it's not just like I don't. It's not just Netflix saying I don't want Hulu to know uh, how well Stranger Things did. It's also uh, Netflix saying uh, we don't want the Duffer Brothers to know how well Stranger Things exactly. did. Exactly. And also,
1: wow. like the value. This is something that you know I love to study too. Is like the value of a show on the platform it's currently available on absolutely changes if you look at what the potential value of that show is once it moves to a different platform different network and oftentimes uh, it's it's an increase so if you you know if you take a certain show and it's like, like let's say the show whatever it might be is worth i don't know 200 million dollars on I don't know, uh Hulu if you move that show over to like let's say you want to value that show on like four or five different platforms, it might be worth 100 million on Amazon, it might be worth 120 million on HBO Max, but that same show is actually worth, you know, 600 million on Netflix for whatever reason it might be. It might be like an overlap with audience, it might be that it is the thing that, you know, if we when I when I when I spend a lot of time with both both sides of the of the of the, of the table, there's this question of like matching what you have to what they need or matching what they have to what you need. And so this idea of like if you – like I know, for example, that Paramount Plus' audience skews slightly more female but slightly more older. And so if you're trying to find a young female audience or if you're trying to find a younger male audience, um, like what type of shows you can invest in? Right? Like a Halo show. Like you're going to say we want a Halo show. We have this audience that skews slightly older and slightly more female um, versus if you look at a platform like um, – like, an, uh, like a Hulu, Hulu skews slightly more male. So so understanding, you know, and then understanding like, okay, well, what are their big genres? Like Netflix tends to skew a little bit. Um, Drama heavy, they tend to skew. Um, Teen heavy, so they actually would really love like action series and this idea. And they could really use like satir- um, satirical comedy, like there's certain comedy that they could really use. So if you understand the inherent... Value of matching the needs of the platform to what you have your pro your, your show may be worth even more on that platform than the platform that you're available on and this matters if you like end up having like rights retention in in your in your contract like whatever it might be you can take the show ten years later and move it somewhere else like whatever it is but also if you are the ott side right like you can say based on what this is like this show that's available there is actually going to be formal about formal valuable to us and like how do we then go about working with that creator on their next project or whatever it might be. So yeah, like to Jason's exact point, they don't want to say like, here's how much the show is worth for us or here's how all the show is doing for us. Like, and then everyone's like, oh, well, what is it? How can we, you know, take that and kind of learn from it? But this idea that there is data that is inherently uh, important to all parties on this side of the equation and being able to access that data, even if you have a bunch of NDAs associated with it, right? Like at least if you're like, this is what your show's worth, signed contract, you can't talk about it. Here's what, you know, here's what it is. All of a sudden, you get into a place where you can have formal negotiations, like you can have actual open conversation about what both the buying side and the selling side are trying to accomplish. The selling side wants people to watch the show and for it to be a global hit. The buying side also wants that and they wanted to make sure that it fits within their needs for that quarter or for that year, for the next 18 months, next 36 months, whatever it might be. Um, And I think we're we're, we're not there yet, but we're close to it. And inherently, this will be a combination of companies who figure out ways to value content uh, and and conversations with the unions, conversations with the agents, conversations with the talent themselves to kind of say, like, we're not going to do something unless we get more transparency. Like, like this is our thing that we're going to fight for. So it's a very exciting time coming out. The, the one thing I really just want to get across to reiterate is that we conflate viewership with value. Viewership is a part of value and it is a very important, obviously, a very, very important part of value. It is not the whole value right. on streaming services. And if we can get people to start asking, what is the inherent value of my show or my film to your platform instead of just how many people watched it, you're going to open up the bigger conversation that leads to much more direct uh, questions and answers about, you know, like just what you, what, you know, your life's work going forward.
0: Also, um, I mean, this is something that's not new, but the complexity is different because people understood the business model of network TV. It was ad sales. And this, this is something that actually happened basically around when i was born so a very long time ago like in the early 70s and late 60s you had the beginning of the understanding of demographics of viewers and it completely and that moved through the 70s into the 80s completely changed the valuation of tv shows because you ended up having these shows that had big audiences but the audiences weren't valuable in the same way not that they're not valuable but remember this is this is the era it's the Uh, this show is incredibly popular, but it's only incredibly popular with people in their fifties and sixties. And if the advertisers and all the advertising money are trying to reach people in their twenties and thirties, or at least are willing to pay more to reach the people in their twenties and thirties, then the raw viewership number, although it has value is not the right question to ask, right? Because it, 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 every viewer brings a different sort of value to that equation. And as a result, you can look it up in your TV history. Like CBS did one thing where they had all these shows that were basically appealed to older, people in rural areas and they realized that the nation was increasingly urban and younger and um i believe it was cbs that had a bunch of these rural shows like green acres and they just canceled them all um even though they were good in the ratings they're like no we don't want these shows they're bad for us because the value isn't there and that that kept going on and it's the thing that frustrates people about but but i'm watching it but it's like "Mm, yeah but that's not enough. Right. Like, first off, it's just you're one person and that's not enough to supply unless you're a billionaire to uh you Jeff Bezos. You can order more of The Expanse because you are one person and you want to see more. But most people can't do that. Um, and also, yeah, the, it is a value calculation that is now incredibly more complex because the value now is about uh, some of these quotes in the Vulture story. Right. It's like, oh, well, they told me that what I really needed to do was appeal to international and get people to subscribe in the U in the U S um, that those were our goals, not to get a lot of people watching who already have Netflix uh, because they didn't care. <laughs> like what they really cared about was, or maybe not that they didn't care, but that they the value of re- ascribing some amount of retention of lack of churn to your show is really intangible versus, Oh, people came to the platform for this show or it helped us grow in Europe or Asia um, and so it's like even harder now to make that ca- value calculation. Um, but it is true in TV history, if you look back, that there was that moment where everybody realized that a raw view- viewership figure was not going to work for advertisers. And, and that meant the value calculation totally changed. I, I read a story about the original Star Trek, which we famously know is a almost got canceled or did get canceled you know, every time. And they brought it back and they saved it. Um, and what I didn't realize was demographically, it was a hit um and if it had come on the air 5 years later it probably would have been a hit, recognized as a hit and stayed on for a long time because it was very popular with young people but um that at the time the raw viewership number is all that mattered and so putting it putting star trek up against i don't even know what show i can't even make up a show that was also on in 1968 but that appealed to a older rural audience that was larger at the time it didn't matter but very soon thereafter it did matter. So these these in some ways this is an old story the difference is that the metrics are totally different and shifting, right? As streaming service business models shift. And so it's not even a thing where we can say, okay, we got it. We everybody understands what the value is now cuz they don't like they, they actually don't. And these are new streaming services. So some of them, their goal was acquisition and now it's going to be retention and reducing churn because they're changing the age, you're know, right. They're entering a new part of their life. So huh, it's a lot. I'm, I'm kind of glad I'm not in this business. <laughs> yeah. And I think also
1: <laughs> just to, just to add to that exact point, there's this really fun moment that's happening where, because of the intrinsic value of a series due to its, Audience, like if we think of demographics, and we just think in general of, of just ongoing demand, the intrinsic value of a title from ten years ago is worth more than its viewership ever might have been. So you take a show like Skins or Misfits, or, or there's a uh, I think it was Norwegian, it was either Norwegian or, or Swedish. I'm gonna get it wrong, but hopefully a viewer, a reader, a wow, a listener listens and knows it. But there's a show called Scam, and it was this, like, teenage, European teenage show that was kind of in the vein of skins. That show found a huge audience on Tumblr, despite it not having insanely great ratings, and is now worth like you know the value of that show goes up for whether you're on a platform like freebie and you're looking to bring more viewers in and they're looking for the show to watch and they don't want to torrent it or you're you know hulu and you're trying to appeal to a younger audience or you're disney plus you have a young audience but you want to branch out into something a little bit more teen heavy that's not franchise based like the value of those shows change because of the audience and the and the, and the inherent demand and what's tied to it and so being able to understand the the impact of a show, whether it's 10 years later, whether it's in this moment, whether it's before the show even comes out, what is the potential value of a show based on what it's going to try to accomplish to a platform based on what that platform needs? Like, the, like these types of questions, you know, that's that's the type of question that's more asked by the buying side than it is the selling side. But these types of things all come down to like content valuation. That is what we were talking about is content valuation. Uh, and And it's exciting that we're getting to a point where because we have all this inherent data around streaming which sounds funny because there's such a lack of transparent public data but the idea that we can collect data on how all of these different films and series work together to create a platform and then those platform needs and then the value of the potential title that they bring on to fill to help fill those needs um that's exciting and so i yeah like i think as we move forward, these conversations will become much more frequent. And as we really start to see content valuation start to really play out with whoever, you know, figures that out, um, then we'll be able to um, to have re- even, even more in-depth, important conversations about the future of content.
0: Really interesting stuff. It'll continue to grow and change. And we'll continue to talk about it. Um, I wanted to talk about Marvel a little bit. And this is a little bit... Of a theatrical thing, but it's more than that. You uh, linked to a a tweet by Frank Pallotta about... Uh, cinema score ratings for Marvel movies and pointing out that all the MCU movies basically of all of them, only four of them have a cinema score under an A grade, which is sort of like you're pulling people after they come out of the show of how they how they liked it and they they assign a letter grade to it in the end. Um, but three of the four under A grades for Marvel are in the last year, which indicates that Marvel is in at least again, they were they were like B's. They were not this is this movie sucked they were just a little less enthusiastic than they have been for all the movies since thor which was the other one by the way that got the original thor that didn't get an a i find that amazing because thor 2 is the one that was terrible don't don't at me um the uh interesting thing here so it's like a little little creative skid or at least uh, a slump although Part of me wants to say it's a a normal thing for something like this to happen when you have a story that reaches a climax with Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame and a bunch of your main characters kind of leave the stage and you have to start back from kind of zero and reset things that it's not surprising that nothing is going to kind of reach the heights and there's a context to be kept here. I've also heard people say, this is franchise fatigue. People are just tired of Marvel movies and they want to move on to the next thing. I'm not sure the box office bears that out. And also a cinema score that's a B or a B plus is not the end of the world. But my question is, I wonder how much Disney plus factors into this. And that's why I wanted to bring it up on the show is that obviously like marvel has been a success story they can't keep it up necessarily forever and even if they can't keep it up they could still be incredibly successful and creatively successful but it may it may never be what it was because the world has changed and because uh they've used those characters and they have to do something different now and they're working on other stuff but the reason i wanted to bring it up here is I do wonder if Disney Plus is one of the reasons that this is happening, uh, that people are a little less enthusiastic about Marvel. And it's not because they're less enthusiastic about Marvel stuff as properties and as content and as things they love, but that maybe it's all a little less special when there's lots of it. And there's two things there. One is, the fact that all a lot of movies got delayed because of the pandemic, so there are so many Marvel movies coming out right now, and I think it's maybe too many, and so it's like, oh, you know, wasn't didn't Doctor Strange just come out? Now there's a Thor, and uh, you know all of that. But the other thing is, like, I also spent six weeks watching Moon Knight, and now we're watching Ms. Marvel, and so I have a weekly appointment with the Marvel Universe on Wednesday nights. Thank you very much on Disney Plus. So. I, I have to think that maybe plus there's the window right the the forty five days or whatever we know that the that that next Marvel movie is going to be on Disney Plus so it, everything feels a little less special and I wonder if that's one of the 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 parts of this too that you have a wildly successful thing like the MCU you want to take advantage of it to launch your streaming service all good you're making more Marvel content that's great everybody's kind of happy but it does make it less special.
1: Yeah. And there's so there's a lot to unpack with Marvel as there is on any given day. I think I want to highlight what you said at the beginning of it because it's the most important part. On the one hand, the last, you know, three or four Marvel films have received some of the lowest grading and cinema scores kind of yeah. still the industry go to for quality. Um, and, and so, you know, compared to phase one through three, there is the sign of like audiences perhaps not being as enthralled with the direction the films are going in and they're just not as into it. Uh, but to your exact point – Thor: Love and Thunder did like three hundred million dollars opening yeah. weekend. Um, my new phrase is like love, like um, life, death, and taxes. The MCU movie will have a strong opening
0: weekend. And to be clear, its cinema score was a B plus, as was Doctor Strange's score, a B plus. So not exactly, it's not an A minus, but not a D, not a C. It was a B plus. It was e- Eternals was a B. Eternals is the lowest scoring Marvel movie in cinema score. I kind of understand that, um, but. Uh, but anyway, just – it's not exactly like it's fallen off a cliff, but it's not an A like all the other movies since the first Thor movie.
1: Right. I, I think – well, here's the other thing that's happening with Marvel that's that's the crux of the issue. So it's not necessarily that the quality is sliding. What is, I think, much more apparent is the last few Marvel movies, if we think of Thor, uh, Love and Thunder, if we think of The Eternals, and if we think of Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness mm-hmm. – um, all of those are extremely filmmaker-focused movies. They are they are movies that come it's true. from.
0: You can say that you you know who the directors are, right? It's it's Chloe Zhao right. and Sam Raimi and and Taika Waititi.
1: Right. So so if we take. The, the the score if we take the cinema score and we take this idea of like Marvel is allowing these directors to kind of create almost non Marvel movies right like Sam Raimi created a Sam Raimi movie Taika it Waititi is. created the most Taika Waititi movie in the world um, <laughs> Chloe Zhao made a made made her film a, bu- um, a
0: beautiful a beautiful looking emotionally distant film yes
1: <laughs> right like if we take that and we put it up against the score what that tells us is that audiences aren't necessarily interested Interested in director-led films. What they're interested in is Cookie Cutter. Mm. Now, on the one hand, this is unsurprising, right? It, uh, Marvel films are kind of like um New York Times news briefs in the sense that they're formulaic. You know exactly what you're gonna get out of it. They're gonna use Mr. for every name. Like there's a very specific way you go about it and you're understanding. Like this is a Marvel film. At the same time, Marvel is at the most interesting crux in its moment over the last 12 years because Marvel or more 14 years. Because Marvel now has to deal with a, tw- a, a turn in generation for its franchise development. The older people who came up with, with the Iron Man, the Captain America Marvel are kind of aging out a little bit. They're, even if they're not aging out, they're not necessarily the audiences that are going to buy a bunch of merchandise, that are going right. to go to the parks necessarily. Like they're, they're not the ones who are going to go even really opening weekend. Like they might be like, you know what? I've got stuff going on. i got a wedding. Like I'm going to go do something else. And, but I do love Marvel movies. Or I don't really care for this. You know, it's not a huge thing. I'm going to wait till it comes on Disney Plus and I do want to watch it there. You know, my partner's kind of like that sometimes. So you have to bring in the new generation of kids, which means you have to introduce new superheroes because you have to make it intrinsically theirs in order for that franchise to continue moving forward, right? So you think about like people in the 70s and 80s had Luke and Han, people in the early 2000s had Anakin and Obi-Wan, people in 2015, 2016 had Ray and Poe. Like, like if you think about how they kind of go forward and they're like, this is your franchise, this is what makes it different from your parents' franchise, but everyone right. can enjoy it. Marvel is there. Marvel is like, how do we turn this crux? And and ensure that the next ten years of the superheroes that we introduce and, this, and the world that we introduce is just as captivating to a seven eight nine year old, and then they go back and watch the the other films and they're like involved in this world as it was to the 12, 13 year olds when they were coming up two thousand eight. And the two ways to do that: one, new superheroes expanding the world. That's that's one. That's like the creative side of it. Right. But two, if you're Marvel, it's kind of like, well, what if we leaned into directors who had a different vision and we kind of got away from the Russo brothers style uh Avengers movie, Captain America movies, we went into a direction where we let different people come in and they, as we figure out how we're gonna do these superheroes, there's a new take on the characters that we're introducing. And I think what you're seeing with the cinema score is like the old the 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 main audience going like, I don't really know if I'm into this. I was super into the other Marvel stuff. But the benefit of that means that there's a new audience who can come into it and say like oh well, i didn't really like that stuff but i do like this mm. i knew so many people who weren't into marvel movies and then they watch thor ragnarok and thor love and thunder and they're like i love it like like i like taika right. right like people who i know who didn't weren't super big marvel people watch sam raimi do doctor strange and they're like i love it it's sam, sam sam raimi movie right like it's this idea you know film twitter notoriously not very into marvel movies love the eternals because they love the chloe Zhao movie well- like it's so uh, there's this oppor- yeah. there's this opportunity for Marvel to say like okay, why don't we try to branch out, find new audiences as we're doing with the Disney yeah. plus series as we're trying to figure that out.
0: Also spending their spending their, their 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 capital that they've amassed, which is a lot, to take some risks with these directors because honestly, yes. so much of the previous series has been defined by John Favreau and um by the the Russo brothers. The Russo brothers. And, I mean, you can't, like, it, I saw Falcon and Winter Soldier. You, you actually desperately need an infusion of new ideas. And they've got so much capital play with that it, It's like, well, why not bring in these creative people? Let them be a little more creative. It's the early days of whatever this phase is. The risks are not as high. And and I, I, mean, I think they need, and on Disney Plus as well, it's like, let's be a little experimental right now. If not now, then when, right? And that, that you want to try some new stuff. Or it will die because they'll just be replaying the same, you know, Winter Soldier movie over and over again, and nobody, even I love that movie. I, nobody needs to see that movie again and again. Well, and I, again.
1: And, I, and, I, and I think just to stress the point that you made for the first point you make, it's it's the most important part. The point that I brought up again just a few minutes ago, like these movies are making money. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's not like yeah. it's not like it's like oh god, Marvel is you know putting out a two hundred million dollar movie and they're only making twenty five million dollars on it. This is not like a John Carter situation. This right. is. This is very much, hey. To your, I like the way you put it, Jason. I'm gonna, I'm gonna reset. I'm gonna reset what you just said. The capital that they that they have, they are now trying to figure out. Okay, we have the audience. They are they are one of the few few studios that can say. We have a built-in audience no matter what we do. And the only thing I can compare it to really is the amount of people who hate Star Wars but still watch Star Wars. Like <laughs> Star, Lucasfilm can go, we have the audience. Like they're not not—they're going to watch the thing we do. Why don't we try to figure something out? Why don't we try to take a chance and see if we can tap in to the audiences that aren't built in? And right. this is kind of the thing, the question with Disney Plus. I think you can translate it to the Marvel Studio side. You know what Disney Plus is doing with Marvel – Uh, TV show-wise, and also what Disney Plus is going to try to do beyond its franchises is that same question. It is Bob Chapek and the programming team, Dana Walden and that team going, we have the Star Wars and Marvel and and Princess people. Like They're there. Like We don't (laughs) have to worry about them. They're not going to cancel. They're not going to go anywhere. And we're going to make sure that they're happy, and we're going to try to experiment with Marvel so we can continue growing the brand of people who might come into WandaVision, and then they get super into the, the MCU, like whatever it might be. People come into Mandalorian, they get into Star Wars, but they're like we ha- we have we have capital now like let us go and try to do something different and and tap into that you know an even bigger total addressable market uh and so i think it's really exciting but there is this point of like hey things are changing with the mcu the audience that's current is not necessarily into it but that doesn't mean also that the next film is you know like black panther 2 might end up getting an a plus like who knows and then this conversation is moot but it could also be we're going to try and do something new we're going to try to make this for a new generation and it might take a year or two to figure stuff out but we're hopefully going to get
0: there marvel's going to be okay guys uh We keep, I feel like we're going to keep saying that, but I think it, I, I was going to mention Shang-Chi too, which we didn't mention, but that's mm. another example of a movie that felt different. Like it was Marvel after Endgame, it's like, let's play here. Other than the Spider-Man movie, which was, you know, it's with Sony and they, it's got its own kind of thread that it's doing, but the rest of these movies have been like, let's play a little bit. Right here in the aftermath, let's try some different stuff, and they're going to be okay. I do wonder if there's less of an impetus to go out and see the uh, movie first weekend, given that Marvel is sort of like like I was saying at the end of my opening statement. uh, It's a little less special. Um, That said... um, that's what a problem to have that that people will watch every movie you make and watch your TV shows and they might just not be out there, all of them on day one. Like Marvel's going to be okay. But but I do wonder if, I, I felt it myself. It's a little bit of like, you know the impetus to go see thor love and thunder which i actually do want to do but it, i feel a little less about it because it's like i just saw doctor strange i'm watching ms marvel it's like i'm not quite as hungry for the next marvel thing as i was a couple of years ago but that's okay because you know what i am doing is consuming a lot of marvel things and that's probably okay too mm-hmm. they're they're gonna they're gonna be fine don't worry about marvel <laughs> um okay i wanted to talk about it's it's our friend uh, joe dalian again Boy, this is like the Joe Adalian show here.
1: Friend of the podcast. Joe Friend Adalian.
0: of the podcast, Joe. Uh, Vulture did a story where they uh, talked to a bunch of people in the biz and tried to come up with how streaming services are regarded by the insiders. And it's sort of the streaming rankings. It's their second edition of these. Um, we, a- I think we actually talked about these last year. We've been doing this so long now that I think we actually talked about this. Maybe when you were on Upgrade um really interesting story it'll be in the show notes um which are in your podcast player you can go to relay.fm slash downstream slash 22 and you can see them there um uh, hbo max at the top which i thought was really interesting that that uh and the, the big money line there was they under promise and over deliver um and then disney plus at number two with a note that they need, as you pointed out, that they they may they need to get the habit going across all age groups. They've got Star Wars and Marvel and princesses and, and they're like, you need to expand a little bit. This is why maybe Hulu shouldn't be separate. Uh, and then Netflix at third and the money quote there was, they are a mess. Um, and then I thought, interestingly, Apple TV Plus at, uh, four and it had the highest sort of what service has momentum score. I think part of that is the best picture win for Coda and also just the recognition that they are what somebody said is the anti Netflix or in other words playing by the classic HBO model of not having a lot of stuff but having it all be pretty good. Uh, and I think one executive said something like, even if I don't end up liking it, I can see the quality in it and why they why they decided to make it. Um, and then the list goes down to like paramount and peacock at the bottom where people are like why even bother um uh, but what did you think about this list how does it fit with uh how you're thinking of how these all match up right now
1: yeah i, I probably would have reordered it slightly mm. but i will say that i you know hbo max the top is completely unsurprising yeah. it was it's interesting i was having this conversation on twitter and the thing to point out about hbo max so the thing to point out about this ranking is that it's a critic and industry style ranking that's not based on subscriber numbers because obviously if it was based on subscriber numbers it would look much much different, um, and I think that's important because what we're trying to inherently say or with this with this list is like how is it tied to how general consumers think about it and the reason I bring that up is because HBO you know as 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 Jason and I are talking the Emmy nominations are happening and HBO has done extremely well. Um, as they always do. But HBO has always had, you know, going back to like the late 90s, early 2000s, nothing but critical success and critical adoration. It has not always had super strong subscriber numbers. It is this idea that like HBO shows, you know, there's, there, there, one of my favorite stories is about how The Sopranos on DVD became like a huge revenue thing for HBO because these people didn't want to watch, subscribe to the network, but they wanted to watch The Sopranos. so They bought DVDs. It became like a huge business for them. And I think if we think about that similar line of thinking, HBO Max and domestically, I think, is sitting around 47, 48 million subscribers. That includes the 30 million at the time, linear subscribers. It might have been a little bit less than that. They've, they've, they've done pretty well for themselves. They're about half the size of um, US and, net, and Canadian um, subscriber numbers for Netflix, which is about 75 million as of the last quarter. The point that I'm trying to bring up there is that the interesting relationship I want to see between this critical adoration for HBO Max and also this kind of general talk of... You you hear more people talking about HBO Max and you hear more people saying, like, "I I only watch HBO Max, which is great. What I'm really interested in is to see whether we can see more of a one-to-one relationship play out between incremental quarterly subscriber addition on the HBO Max side contrasted to an incremental decrease on the U.S.-Canadian Netflix side or whatever it might be. There, there, this question about are people canceling one to get the other, you know, is kind of those are the two services that people pit. It's are people canceling Netflix to go to HBO Max, are people whatever it might be. And so I look at this list, and on the one hand, if we're talking about just straight-up shows, just the actual content, there is no doubt that HBO Max is number one. And that's including the Max side. I saw someone else on Twitter, um, Dave Poland, who's a really great critic uh, and analyst, he said to me, like, um, he's like, yeah, but how many shows can you name on the HBO Max side? Like, it's the uh, HBO platform they said, you know, I don't think it's true doesn't anymore. Matter. I think, I think also, yeah, first of all, it doesn't matter. But also, Hacks, Our Flag hacks. Means Death, yeah. of Station Eleven, Julia. Mm-hmm. Like there's a ton of HBO Max shows, um, Sex Lives of College Girls that people are finding. And they're just as happy. And so, yes, Jason's exact point, it's the Hulu FX debate, right? It's like, it doesn't matter. Like yeah. they're coming to this platform and their shows. Yeah. Is Westworld on HBO Max?
0: Yes, it is. I mean, I know it's on HBO, but who cares? It's on HBO Max. Is John Oliver on HBO Max? Yes, he is. Right? Like in the end... It doesn't matter. Plus, yes, to your point, Hacks, one of the best shows on TV, HBO Max original. Station Eleven, one of the best miniseries in the last couple of years, HBO Max original. Now, we could argue maybe they should have been on HBO, but you know the point is it doesn't matter if if you're watching HBO Max. It, it literally doesn't matter.
1: Well, and I think, the, and so so along that line of thinking, right? if we look at these rankings, like Disney Plus makes a ton of sense. They've got the big Marvel shows, the big Star Wars shows. If you've got kids, you're going to sign up for Disney Plus. Like, the idea of what that I think Disney Plus comes in second only because it almost feels inevitable. Still, it feels like the platform that's kind of like most families will have it. It's just the thing people have, and from a business standpoint, that's great. Creatively, they need to branch out. You know, Netflix, <laughs> Netflix. Like I, we've 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 talked at length about Netflix. Apple TV Plus is really interesting because they're the momentum winner, which makes sense, right? We've I was just looking at um, Emmys nominees while we were talking, and Apple. Apple and HBO were the only two that got both drama and comedy nominations, uh, which is impressive for Apple. And everyone's going to talk about the fact that HBO kind of swept nominations, like, like they they did really well. But Apple really came out. And Apple here's all these shows. And to Jason's earlier point, this is kind of the HBO playbook. But if we think about what made HBO Max a far more successful streaming service, or subscription service rather, than HBO proper, it was – Friends, right? It was South Park. It was like it was The West Wing. It was the shows that were not HBO shows that people, after they finished the HBO show, went, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch this because this is a show that I'm gonna watch." That's the difference between a successful subscription service and not. It's it's do you have the new thing that everyone's talking about and I want to watch? Yes, but do you also have something that's that creates inherently uh, inherent value for my fifteen dollars a month that I'm gonna open this up every single day? Um, and HBO didn't necessarily have that. I mean, remember HBO was running reruns of movies and like, and then their shows. And so a lot of people were like, hey, I don't need this. So what did we see a lot with HBO? And Think of Game of Thrones. We saw a lot of piracy. There was a lot of people who were like, I don't yeah. want to buy HBO because I don't spend $15 a month extra on my cable bill. It's already like $200. I just want to watch the show. And pirating has never been easier. And so I think with Apple, you're seeing a similar thing where if you look at Apple TV Plus as a whole, that streaming service is not inherently value. Uh, selling proposition-wise to, to customers. It, like, there's not much there. There's a lot of great TV, but like in small parts and not necessarily overlapping each other. And so you're kind of like, I don't necessarily need this, especially if I have access to like popcorn time or something that's very easy that is, or Plex that is inherently like a streaming service. And people are like, here's the new Apple TV plus show. And you're like, cool. I'm getting the show. I'm happy. I don't want to pay for it. And so, you know, if we look at the streaming rankings, on the one hand, from a, a content perspective, Apple TV Plus, pretty high. They, they've done a lot. If you look at the value of it, though, if you look at like the subscriber count, which we don't really know, but I would estimate it's probably around 20 to 25. That would be my guess. It's not super great. Like, like it's it's it's, imp- it's especially on a global level, 20 to 25 for a company like Apple, where there's three billion phones out like like and they're practically giving it away still not. Super good. And then I think if you look at the last four, Hulu and Prime Video have this meh quality still, which is not to say the shows are not good. It just has this like I suppose it's there aspect, which is not something you necessarily want. If you look at Paramount and Peacock, um they're the two that are the most caught up in still being tied to linear, and that, and therefore they're the two that are still caught up in where does this show go? Does it go to my linear network? Does it go to here? How do I convince people to sign up for this if I don't necessarily have a splashy HBO or Disney Plus Marvel type show? Like all those questions are are, are still at bay. So I do think that Peacock um, is showing stronger growth as they're focusing more on Esfa, which is really great. And I think with the sports packaging that they're figuring out, I think Peacock, you know, potentially. May see some optimism, uh, potentially, and I think Paramount Plus. You know, I'm I've, I've said on this podcast before. I'm a Paramount Plus bull. I think what for the I think for the money they're putting into that platform versus the money they're still making on deals versus the overarching continued demand increase for that platform as a whole, um, and as they're figuring out the franchises, as they're figuring out audiences. I think Paramount Plus, and I've said this before on podcasts. I think Paramount Plus, HBO Max, Disney Plus uh, are the three that I can maybe see you really really kind of finding core audiences and I exclude Netflix cuz I Netflix will be fine. Netflix will have its international yeah. audience and, and it's good, but in terms of like in the US what are the other three potentials? HBO Max, Disney Plus for sure and I would I would put Paramount Plus up there.
0: Yeah, I think they were a little unfair. I mean, it's Paramount Plus its early days. And I, I get I get there um, there was a focus somebody said uh, they can't decide whether they want to be CBS plus or Showtime it's like well the Showtime thing is complex and they probably need to work on that and there's a lot there's a lot going on there but
1: and they're gonna bring it in they're gonna like it's yeah, gonna right? be a thing like they'll bring showtime shows in
0: right at which point it will be you know it will be a little more in the flavor of HBO max which is the right decision yeah. so so yeah I I, I agree um peacock, Again, I can, I can defend things about Peacock. I think that there's a lot about Peacock that is uh, is going in the right direction. Um, their Olympic stuff was good, um, but their originals have not caught fire, right? And I think the, somebody mentioned the must-see TV and they didn't mean it positively. And I think there's some truth to that, that like they've programmed some nice sitcoms. I know we've talked about them here, but nobody seems to be watching them, even though they're actually pretty good. Nobody seems to be watching them, so there's a real challenge there. I, I I do look at Paramount Plus and Peacock and think, other than the issue of that CBS and NBC can't really merge without spinning off one of their broadcast networks, um, it, it they do seem like they need to bulk up in some way. So I mm-hmm. guess we'll see. It's funny about Apple TV Plus. Like I, I think people are like, yeah, they're playing the game pretty well uh as as you've said they're playing the ecosystem game so it's them and amazon playing a very different game than everyone else but that apple is currently playing it better than amazon and i want to quote that it made me laugh uh prime video is a, a a place where you buy big budget action shows in order to sell toilet paper that made me laugh and then the other comment was boy i hope that lord of the rings show works out for them <laughs> because they spent a lot of money on it i don't know Does Jeff i've Bezos care? uh
1: I've- I've been in um i am in a few different slacks just just with with people and at one one of the slacks that I was in the other day somebody brought up um they were just like does anyone else look at the teasers for the Amazon Lord of the Ring show and just think this costs 500 million dollars yeah, yeah. and I was like yeah although I do think and I want to say this for the next for the for the podcast when um Jason and I come back but There is a really interesting thread about the VFX workers and working on all the different Marvel stuff. And and now the shows and especially as other companies try to get more into like big, big Marvel style um, visual effect type stuff where the VFX employees at the studios, there's no time. Like, Like we cannot do this. There's not enough manpower, not enough time for us to actually make good VFX anymore. And I was like, huh. You know what? That's not surprising, considering. So whenever I look at the the Amazon show, the, excuse me, the Lord of the Rings show, Jason, like you just said, I'm like, I hope that this works out for you guys. <laughs> Who knows? I, t- I told someone else this the other day. I, was, I have a bad feeling about the, the the Lord of the Rings show. So we'll see.
0: I don't know. It could be good, but there's there's a lot um, riding on it. Right. Like that. that's the th- thing is there's so much overhead that it's like it's like a, a movie with a huge budget where the story becomes, oh, it's you know, it's not just it's Avatar or Titanic or whatever. People don't remember uh, young people. Let me tell you a story. Titanic was a joke until it came out because everybody was like they spent what on that movie and they spent how long shooting it and they did what in a tank in Mexico in order to shoot this movie. Oh, boy, James Cameron, what are you doing? And then it made a billion dollars and people are like, oh. Okay. But like the narrative of this is expensive and costs a lot of money is hard to shake because it, it, when you start out, your narrative about your show or movie is not what it is, but what it costs. And Lord of the Rings, that's totally what it is right now. So we'll see if they can turn it around. So that marks the end of this episode. Of uh, downstream we've been going for more than an hour look at us but uh, and there are no letters this time but don't worry because we're gonna do a whole we're're we're, um, we're, basically we're taking an episode off um, and pre-recording an episode that's nothing but letters so um, if you have a question for us it won't be in the next episode but we're going to need letters when we come back too so send us an email downstream at relay.fm if you're a relay FM member you can send a message preceded by question mark ask downstream. In the Relay FM members discord, yeah, it's true, or tweeted us at downstream pod. Love to your mothers. You can find our director of strategy, Julia, at loudmouthjulia on Twitter and parrotanalytics.com. And of course, you can find me, your master of ceremonies, at jsnell on Twitter and sixcolors.com. Till next time, when we'll read some letters from listeners, say goodbye, Julia. Bye, guys.